Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Once again, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. I'm here with the Center's co-director, Mike Murphy, for the next episode of what we call The Bully Pulpit. Today's subject is what's happening at the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Conference. We have a terrific panel. Mona Lisa Chatterjee is an assistant professor of environmental studies at USC. She has previously worked with the United Nations Development Program and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change with Stanford University. Shannon Gibson is an associate professor of international relations and environmental studies at USC Dornstife. Robert O'Brien is an incoming Fulbright Resumacy at the USC Center for Public Diplomacy, among other many other things. So let me start off with this question. President Biden announced what he called very bold climate targets, but he's had to jettison some of his major climate proposals to get enough Democratic votes, he hopes, to pass his Build Back Better plan. Did this hurt his credibility in America's capacity to lead at COP26 in, in Glasgow, and anyone can take this up. Shannon? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Robert, go ahead. You volunteered. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, from uh, looking at it from an outside perspective, uh, I think it really does uh, hurt the United States' ability to lead. I think for outsiders looking at the American political system right now, it appears uh, highly dysfunctional. It appears to be a system that makes it difficult to um, get anything done. It's difficult to get a plan through the U.S. Congress. Fossil fuel industry seems extremely uh, powerful in the the U.S. Congress. And if the COVID epidemic is anything to go by, there's large sections of the U.S. population that seem uh, misinformed about basic health and and scientific facts. So one of the things I think that's different about, about climate change from other international treaties is it really depends on on uh, domestic politics and domestic implementation. It's not something the president can do on his own. So I think uh, for most of the world looking at uh, the COP conference, they're not really expecting the United States to be able to, to implement promises that it makes. And what if that Build Back Better plan with $500 billion approximately in climate mitigation measures never passes? It's a mess, and it's not clear that it's going to make it through. I'll jump in and say just from sort of the international level, I think um, looking at civil society's perspective on this and others, um, other, you know, delegations from, you know, the 194 countries that are that are there um, at, at COP26 right now, it might not be that surprising. Unfortunately, we've had a lack of climate leadership for over or for decades now. Um, so going back even to COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009, where was there was a lot of external hope that President Obama and his delegation would kind of bring through a sort of saving treaty to be the successor to the Kyoto Protocol, that too was a failure. And so I think, you know, for some people, unfortunately, it's not as surprising as it may be to some of us here within the United States. Let me ask a more general question. Why is COP26 so important? What's at stake for the global community 
And you tend to agree with John Kerry that we're reaching the point where it's going to be the last chance to prevent catastrophic climate change. Yeah, I, I can start with my thoughts on that. I mean, you know, every time we have these meetings, we are always sort of saying that this is the last chance. Um, in reality, the last chance has been several years, several probably a few decades ago. But uh, but yeah, I mean, whenever we start making some changes and sort of, you know, uh, um, start addressing this issue, it's, it's better than doing nothing. So that's one thing. And saying that it's the last chance, if um, nothing substantial comes out of this, we'll still keep pursuing. And I think what we are understanding from this whole process is that it's not something that we'll be able to deal with at a point like this and uh, and then make peace with it that, okay, we've set the balls rolling for un undoing this or mitigating climate change. And uh, over the next 10, 20 years, it will fall in its place and we will be able to resolve it. Looks like what we are realizing now is that this is going to be like those exciting, very intense pursuit to reach that outcome till the very end. And and uh, and I think sort of framing it this way that this is the last chance gives us this hope that we'll be able to solve it in one moment, which I don't think we are able to or we will be able to. I think it's one of those sort of you know challenges as a whole global community that we'll have to keep up with till the last minute, making sure we are doing every little bit um, to actually achieve what we are trying to achieve. So, um, so that's what my thinking is that it's not something like when it came to like, for example, ozone depletion, we were able to come together and take some decisions, but it's not going to be like that in climate change. It's going to be something that we are going to be struggling and sort of, you know, keep trying to keep up, uh, with the uh, physical process or physical changes that are happening and, and sort of, um, keep working on it. And so it's not, it's, I think it's last chance for every detail that we are trying to get to from now to the time that we have left uh, before some real sort of, you know, irrevocable sort of threshold tipping point we cross. Yeah, just picking up on that, I agree. It's always the last chance. The optics are always good for the politicians. Everybody gets their sovereign aircraft, builds a, burns a ton of jet fuel, runs to somewhere. It's a lot of talking. They get pressed back home. You blame your political enemies if it's Biden. No, I couldn't get all my billions of incentives, and I'm not sure very effective. But where are the Chinese? I, I, you know, I have heard, and you guys are the expert, that they've been getting better compared to seven or eight years ago. Uh, but they didn't deem this last chance of the last chances meeting worth attending. Uh, what? How do you? How do you unwrap that? And what's kind of the state of China uh, in, in this movement? I think it's interesting to look at it was China, you know, Xi Jinping as well as Putin. So Russia, the first and fourth biggest carbon emitters that we have right now that did not attend the UNF triple C, you know, and I, I think, you know, it, it's hard always to ascertain the intention of that. But I think for China, there might be two answers. The first is that China's doing their climate mitigation and adaptation domestically, and they're not waiting for the COP26 or to see what the U.S. is doing. Um, they also maybe got a little bit of wind of the surprise announcement that India launched about their net zero plans. And I think that's one thing we've seen that's been interesting within the negotiating block of developing countries known as the G77, that China and India are kind of jockeying for power a little bit within this group. But I also think potentially it speaks to the the... Um, reduced legitimacy that the UN has right now in dealing with climate change. Um, I think you alluded it to your, you alluded to it yourself that 
these are kind of more, it's more of a stage. It's a place for people right. to go and make announcements, not to really dig into action. So if they're already acting, maybe that they didn't deem it that was necessary for them to be there at the high level. They did send a delegation, just not, you know, the high level leader. Right. And I would like to add that they've already made the decisions and they've already implemented some of these things. It's not, they are just not going for this huge announcement because they've already set those balls rolling and they have a position which they can share by not attending. What I think they are not uh, expecting perhaps, and that's why they're not participating at, at the, um, like at a personal level because is, um, is, is this whole new kind of arrangements and collaborations that can potentially come in this particular meeting, which I don't think they anticipate much. So that's why they've decided to just say that we are already doing what we can. This is our position. It's not going to drastically change based on something that comes out of this meeting. So we might as well not go. Let me ask a question that I think a lot of folks, ordinary folks who are not experts in this, really don't necessarily understand. What will it take to get to a net zero carbon emissions. And what does net zero even mean for the layperson? I mean, what's going to happen if we don't get there? Robert, you want to start? I think for the layperson, net zero means being able to live our lives in a way that doesn't generate greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's a phenomenally ambitious target because what we're talking about is doing something that human civilization really hasn't done before, which is to move to a brand new or different energy source. And it involves uh, changes in, in every facet of, of, uh, of life, how we, how we get around, how we heat our houses, um, how we generate electricity, how we feed ourselves, practically anything you can think about, we have to rethink how we do those activities so that they don't generate greenhouse gases. And what if we don't get there? What if we don't get to net zero? I'll I'll add in a little bit more um, with regards to net zero, because this is a huge issue, especially for civil society and climate justice groups that are in COP26 now and around the world. So there's the idea that, yes, potentially we could get to a point where we've so invested in green technology, completely greened and, um, you you know, completely transformed our economies to be low emitting and things like that. But the fact is, is that net zero, when you look at the devils in the details, is not entirely that. Um, Net zero is highly dependent on the idea of offsets and carbon markets. And so that's one of the big points that's being negotiated at this particular COP are all the details relating to carbon markets, which are part of what's called Article 6 in in the treaty at the moment. Um, And so you could be net zero by emitting no greenhouse gas emissions. You could also be net zero by emitting thousands and thousands of tons of carbon emissions, but then purchasing offsets in developing countries or by, I mean, they're discussing forestry offsets, whale offsets, elephant offsets, all these natural based or nature-based solutions. Um, So net zero on the face sounds wonderful and rosy, but a lot of the details that are being parsed out right now um, raise a lot of questions about even if we get to what's so-called net zero, is it going to be effective and is it going to be long-lasting? Yeah, and I, I would like to add to that. I mean, I think in my own perspective, I think it's uh, framing is not very useful. Saying net zero really overwhelms 
anybody who's dealing with net zero? How do you live in a world without emitting any non, you know, greenhouse gas? And and I think Shannon sort of explained that it's not. It's more about um, finding ways to offset whatever you are adding to the atmosphere, so that the net amount of carbon dioxide or any other greenhouse gas doesn't change in our atmosphere, so that we are actually sort of able to take away what we are adding and therefore keeping the levels at that particular point. So that's what we are trying to achieve. And that is what is realistic, in my opinion, and then by going to sort of, you know, find a way of existing where we are not emitting any greenhouse gas. So that's that's an important, you know, distinction that we have to say, because when we say net zero, it becomes very overwhelming, like the, the transition, the transformation that is expected or even, you know, technically possible to sort of, you know, have that kind of an outcome where there is no greenhouse gas emissions. Countries make commitments at Paris in 2015. Have most countries abided by their commitments on climate targets and how can they hold each other accountable? To meeting those goals? I could say that Climate Action Tracker is a great website for looking um, at the various plans, what we call the nationally determined contributions that were put forth in 2015. And unfortunately, a lot of countries have not met their plans. But I think you need to back up and consider the context. So under the Paris Agreement, the reason they're called nat- nationally determined contributions is that every country got to pick what was politically and economically feasible for them in 2015. So they wrote the rules, they set the baselines, they set their own target. And unfortunately, a lot of countries set themselves a fairly low bar, right? So China, India, some countries meet their targets ahead of time, but they wrote their target. Um, So another thing that's going to be discussed at COP26 is this global stock take that's supposed to happen a year from now, um, where there's this idea that we will have some sort of yardstick to measure countries but right now the big fighting is, will, will that measurement come from countries saying, doing a self-report, which happens a lot in international law and treaties, where they go, hey, how did we do? And then they submit a report to the UN saying, look, we succeeded. Or will there be some sort of third party or outside oversight mechanism? And so that's another big um, negotiating point at the moment um, that we're hoping that they don't punt on that one and push it off another year. Um, but if, 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 if the big powers get their way, it will most likely be some form of self-reporting. Robert, are we going to keep punting and punting and punting? Is that what, what I'm hearing? Well, I mean, it's a tremendously difficult problem to deal with. And um, each country has its own uh, political obstacles to try and overcome. I would say for some countries, like my own country, Canada, we're in the stage of uh, uh, have your cake and eat it too at the moment, where we on the one hand, have introduced a carbon price to try and deal with climate change. But on the other hand, we have a government that nationalized a pipeline to make sure we can get tar sands oil to the coast. So I think at the, at the moment, political leadership in many countries feels that it can do both things simultaneously, which, of course, isn't possible because they're, they're contradictory. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Are we in eternal game of Lucy and the football? Well, I think the other thing is that one of the reasons that COP26 is so important is that all the decisions weren't made in Paris, right? Paris was sort of the scaffolding, right? Now we're putting up the drywall um, and and installing the windows and the doors um, and, and really getting into the actual implementation phase, right? So it was sort of intentional that 
that we would have a long time to figure some of these things out because they took the really contentious parts and said, we'll get to those in a couple of years. Maybe there was some hope that the U.S. would have a different president that might be more amenable, you know, to friendly climate progressive politics. Um, But I think this is part of the design all along. But during the Paris meeting, the scientific sort of, you know, understanding of what we were trying to achieve was slightly different because the, the purpose or the outcome that we are looking for um, is to sort of keep the temperature increase less than two degrees centigrade, preferably less than within 1.5 degrees centigrade. But the special report after that sort of came and sort of established it very clearly that we need to keep it within, you know, within 1.5 degrees centigrade for some of the island states to not get those kind of like, um, you know, irrevocable damages or changes that they would be experiencing if we go beyond 1.5. So, so again, when it, when it comes to the, the structuring of how we're going to approach it, it was using that 2.5 you know, old degree centigrade mostly. And, uh, and therefore people also ended up sort of going for a less chat, like less, less ambitious sort of, you know, targets for themselves. But, uh, but since then we are, our understanding is a little bit more clear and our sort of outcome and our sort of target has sort of become even more rigid and stringent and then difficult to, uh, you know, achieve. And, and, and so that readjustment is also required at this point. Yeah, just to follow up, this is fascinating to me. I'm a practical politician, so I just know that democracies are very bad at compelling people to do things that are in their long-term interest if there's short-term difficulties. The authoritarian regimes really don't. If China wants to seize a coal field and fire everybody, they can. If you don't like it, you go to jail. Here, you know, you got Manchin on line two to the White House. So if over the last five years, who has done a better job, the largest authoritarian economy, the Chinese, so it's a free economy within a semi-free economy of an authoritarian state, or the U.S.? You know, how are we doing on the system versus system progress? Is one significantly materially better than the other, or they're both stumbling over politics, both electoral here and parochial interest groups within kind of the corporatist rule they have at the PRC? Who's who, who's doing? Who's a better model? If you, I, I know morally we're the better model, of course. But in terms of pure effectiveness on this, who's making more progress, or is it equivalent? I think it's extremely hard to answer that question because the systems are so different. And while the points you make, I think, are are very good, um, authoritarian states also have to pay attention to the politics that goes underneath. On underneath, so. China can move in certain directions, but it's also limited. So we see in the last few months the energy shortage in China and them going back to coal in order to try and try and deal with a possible uh, unrest that might happen if the economy slows down. So I wouldn't say it's really one system better than the other, but the two different systems generate different types of challenges that are, are both difficult to deal with. Let me get to a subject, Shannon, that you mentioned very briefly. What's happening at COP26 around climate justice issues? Can you talk about those issues, especially as they relate to indigenous communities around the world? Yeah, so um, I've been following the climate justice movement at the COPs for over a decade now. And some of the major points that that these groups, which include indigenous people's organizations, um, youth activists, people in frontline communities from the global south, focusing on gender and climate. Um, And this maybe speaks a little bit to 
the previous question um, about kind of what system is better. And one of their big concerns that they have is that it's not just about solving the climate crisis. It's about solving the climate crisis in a democratic, open, fair, and just manner, right? So it shouldn't be the elite of the elite that get to make all the decisions, particularly when you have people who are dealing with and living in changing climates today. Um, we still hear this all the time. People talk about climate change as if though it's something still out there and, and apart from us, but we have to acknowledge that there are people all around the world who are dealing with climate adaptation daily, right? So some of the major issues that they are trying to focus on are, again, um, either lessening the role of carbon markets because there's a concern that the accounting is going to be horrible, which will then have catastrophic catastrophic effects to our ecosystems, um, pushing for what we call loss and damage. So providing finance from the global north to developing countries, low island, low-lying island nations who are already experiencing climatic loss, right? So beyond adaptation, actually paying off some of this climate debt. And again, making sure that the voices that are the most impacted are in the room. And this is something that COP26 only in day three has failed spectacularly at. Um, I've been talking to colleagues who are in Glasgow. The access for civil society is the worst we've ever seen in 26 years at the UNFCCC. There are incredibly long lines. Um, the UK government offered programs to help people with visas and with passports and with vaccines, and those programs have not been effective. So we have a lot of people in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in South America who have attended COPs for you know, the majority of their careers who are not there right now. Um, so there's, there's a lot of issues that are coming up from these justice perspectives. What do we mean by climate justice? I think you can think of kind of these three elements to justice. The first is that there has been a historical recognition that certain groups who have been traditionally already marginalized for social, economic, political reasons um, tend to suffer the first and worse from climate change and other environmental degradation. The second part of a justice perspective is acknowledging that these same groups, again, women, children, the elderly, indigenous populations, the poor, um, don't have access to environmental benefits, right? They don't have access to green spaces, to clean drinking water, to clean air, where they live, work, go to school. And then the third aspect is acknowledging that these are the same groups that are less likely to be voted into office or to have the ability or the privilege of being able to be accredited to the UN to attend these talks. So, you know, you can look at, again, the harms, the benefits, and the lack of access. Yeah, I would like to add another dimension to that. And uh, this sort of feeds into why developing countries, to some extent, are not as eager to participate unless they see some sort of action from the developed countries, is that they are then being held responsible for making the changes and that is also climate and sort of, you know, environmental injustice because they have been historically dealing with the consequences with higher levels of exposure, higher levels of vulnerability, but now higher levels of responsibility where they have to give up on something that they have been trying to pursue, pursue and pursue and achieve. And so the responsibility is also unevenly distributed. Some, some countries and some, you know, frameworks would argue in addition to all, all the things that Shannon mentioned. Robert, you talked about the disparate pressures in different regimes, uh, different kinds of regimes. How can countries balance those pressures, those domestic pressures, uh, to rely on greenhouse gases with the international standards that are supposed to be set by COP26? Well, I think 
part of what some people are trying to do is not just talk about the costs of the transition, but talk about the opportunities, right? Whether the opportunities are with regards to employment or sometimes what's called co-benefits, right? That you take action on climate change, but it has a spillover in other aspects of people's lives. So just to give a local example here in Ontario, when we got rid of coal-fired power plants, that did a lot for reducing our emissions, but it also did a lot for uh, improving the air quality of people in our major cities, uh, extending people's lives, helping people who have respiratory problems. So I think part of it is about not always talking about the cost, but about the society-wide benefits that we can get by starting to move through this transition. How do we communicate that to the public as a whole? I mean, right now there's enormous controversy in this country, and it's, it's mounting, about rising gas prices. And while Joe Biden was at COP26 making all these promises, talking about the commitment to get to zero carbon uh, by a date certain, he was also pressing Saudi Arabia and other oil producing countries to increase their oil production. And domestically, there's increasing pressure to raise natural gas production. I mean, how, how do you square that circle? I think one thing that we've acknowledged um, a lot of people is that early on in in sort of the climate um, mobilizations, you know, in the 90s, a lot of it was about the science. And while most of us, the science is incredibly important to understand, um, when communicating to the public, that maybe hasn't been the most compelling. And so what a lot of groups now are really trying to work on is how to tell a climate story and meet people where they are. Right. So if you are a fiscal conservative, then maybe that story isn't about, you know, the science or the moral obligation, but it's talking about peak oil and the fact that we will run out of some of these resources. And that's going to make us less competitive with countries that, you know, we are competing with in the global market. So I think that some, you know, some of us have really tried to to focus on acknowledging that different sectors of society have different self-interests and maybe we need to make that story fit what their self-interests are. Another issue is, is, you know, paying very close attention to the costs and who's, who's bearing the costs and how those costs can be distributed. So, for example, in the, in the carbon tax that, that we have, most of that is rebated back to, to consumers, right, and especially to low-income groups. So that, you know, the people who are worried about gas prices are often worried about gas prices because they're in a, in a financially precarious position. So part of making this transition has to be some kind of redistribution to compensate those people so that they're not the ones who are primarily bearing the cost. Mona Lisa? Yes, I I want to add to both what Shannon and uh, Robert just said. You know, the trouble with environmental justice and uh, lack of participation from people who who are basically dealing with the short end of the stick in terms of uh, additional burdens lack of benefits is that they have not felt historically the benefits that the society has experienced. So I think that the way we have to address this problem is by making sure that their benefits are felt by the communities that are historically being sort of, you know, negatively affected from any kind of decision we make about uh, that involves environment and environmental impacts. And that that is something that we should be focusing on quite excessively because that's where we will find these groups sort of participating. And the same thing as Sharon is saying, 
that if it is not about like whatever it is that encourages it, encourages them or interests them because it is in their self-interest, that is what we can sort of use instead of having this one umbrella of climate change and mitigating climate change. Let's have multiple layers umbrella and use the layer which is going to be useful for them and will speak to them because it's going to have a direct impact on their current situation rather than giving them this broad climate change umbrella which doesn't sort of you know connect with their life at the point at, at that moment because they're dealing with other kind of stresses which are which are coming from the system which is uneven and unjust i'm going to ask mike a question for the first time ever a republican delegation went to glasgow to attend cop 26 is this a sign that perhaps the republican party is evolving on the issue of climate change oh i, I think there's no doubt the next generation of Republican politics are much more climate change friendly. The problem is they're, they're, over time, they're going to revert to the mean, and most politicians are going to be in the same place, which is, boy, we ought to do something about climate change. I'm going to go to a summit. You know, I'm going to have a nine-point plan. I'm going to spend billions of dollars on paying people to buy electric cars, which they still don't do. You know, we pay you $7,000 to buy an electric car. It's about 3% in the U.S., much higher in Europe. Why? European gas cost is a lot higher to buy fuel. That's the market incentive to move people to electrics. But we're back to your $11 gallon of gas problem, which no politician, you know, will, will support carbon taxes in the short term. So it's kind of a catch-22. So I would say the positive thing is the, the party is moving and in some ways demographically driven toward getting its head out of the sand on, on the climate issue. And you have some leaders in the House that are there. You see it moving in the voter data. The problem is it, it's not landing on, you know, the kind of consensus you need for politicians in, I think, most of the democracies, but particularly in the U.S., to take political heat and lose votes to move policies that are uncomfortable in the short term to save the planet in the long term. And that is the fundamental question we have. And that is a hard one to solve because politicians are entrepreneurs and they are rewarded for pleasing people with rhetoric a little more than results. And when there are results, they're very short term. Here's more unemployment insurance. Here's a tax cut. Here's, you know, something you can feel, which, which is why, you know, I thought Mona Lisa had a good point about you've got to recast the debate in a million ways that people can find short term incentives uh, to change their behavior. Or it just becomes a rhetorical luxury. There's a narcissism to it. I'm fighting climate change because I'm driving a Prius. Well, you know, there's an argument that actually the, in the first year, a Prius emits the, the, the manufacturing chain that I'm a car guy that, that makes Priuses net net, you know, burns more carbon than a regular car. But if you drive the Prius enough, it tilts. But these are not the big changes we need. And I, I don't mean to be a grouse about it, but it, but it stumps me politically how we get the willpower for real policy because the model of flying around and talking about it and arguing about who's there and everything is proper and useful, but boy, oh boy, it seems to me like the shot clock is ticking here and, and big tough policies that convince voters to sacrifice a little, um, you know, there's very little interest in that by, by either of the mainstream parties. And that's the question I'd love to know how to solve because Otherwise, the outcome is going to be what it normally is in politics. We wait to a disaster and then we do something. But building a time machine is not really going to be an option. <laughs> Let me follow up on that, because Mona Lisa talked about uh, different umbrellas 
different ways to make the case. In fact, Robert has and Shannon has. What do we say to the folks in these fossil fuel industries that are going to be eliminated and who fear that they're not going to have a job, who fear for their future, and who fear for what's going to happen to their kids? How do we persuade them? I think hopefully we can create policies through the Green New Deal and other um, types of initiatives that, that include just transition, right? That some part of that, that financial um, package that's put, being put together will include funding to support people who need to either be retrained, to shift to other um, industries, to provide a social safety net for them as that transition occurs. So I think that's one thing that hopefully we could include to address those concerns because, of course, they're incredibly valid. Well, I think a few things have to happen. First, I think we have to have a conversation where it's made very clear that these industries are going to go, right? That these industries are going to phase, be phased out. Then we have to have a conversation of how do, we, how do we make that transition. I'd be interested to see more research on whether the resistance to the transition is actually coming from the workers in those industries or whether it's coming from the people who run the industries and, you know, the American Petroleum Association, for example. I know that there's cases where there's groups of workers who are very active in transition, oil workers who are retraining to work in the, in the solar industry. But where is, where is the political friction coming from? Is it from those individual workers or is it from the people who are running those industries who are uh, funding misinformation and stirring up fear and, and trying to mobilize those communities against the the transition to to clean energy. Well, I actually know a little about this. It's interesting. It's not as binary as you think. Some of the big energy companies have the theory of, look, it's going to happen, and we know how to invest capital to make money. We can make it in green energy, particularly the European oil majors. But the American companies are coming around because they're pretty pragmatic. So you have some companies on the spectrum that spend a lot of money lobbying against it, your brothers are like, hey, instead of putting a dollar invested in here, the future dollar is best invested in a clean energy thing. We just have to make the same money at it, which we think we can do. So there's a really a schism, which is new uh, in that world. On the other hand, at the worker level, where a lot of votes are, you can find a spectrum there, too. There, there are you know, plenty of people in the, the energy extraction business who are you know, worried about their short-term economic livelihood. Definitely so in coal. Um, there are others, younger workers, who in the you know are hoping they can they can kind of enhance their own their own skills and find a future here because it's not unknown that it's a fading deal. The question is the slope of the fade, and as you say, there there are people who wish the slope was very flat, and they have an economic interest in the short term to flatten it. And there are others who are kind of resigned. So I would just say it's. There's more fighting going on than big oil secret meetings fight fight climate change and all workers want to be changed over. You know, it's hard to do worker retraining. We, we've learned a lot about that in manufacturing. Once you get over 40, you know, I've been involved in the company trying to convince employees to like, you're not going to be working the machine tool. You got to learn to code. It is logarithmatically more difficult. And, and it's human nature to get people to accept the idea of retraining as they get older. And a lot of these are older populated industries. Right. And, and, you know, there was a provision that was discussed about taking coal miners who were, say, 50 and over and just providing them with a subsidy to live on instead of trying to retrain them to do something else. 
And Senator Manchin said, that's welfare. I absolutely oppose it. I won't, I, I won't let it go through. So I think this is very, very complicated in terms of getting the, the, the transition done from fossil fuels. Now, the leaders have left Glasgow. The Pope has spoken by videotape. What's going to happen at the rest of this conference? Shannon, you're going to be watching it. Yes, if the COP26 platform allows us to participate, because we've heard there are quite a few problems with the hybrid access as well, but hopefully by week two they'll get it worked out. Um, again, there's they a- just need to, they just need to get our good USC people who help put these events together, exactly. and it'll work just fine. Yeah, but like I said, there's there's a lot being worked out. I mean, a huge part of this is the carbon market piece, right? So writing the rules so that there aren't so many loopholes that countries kind of make this, I mean, a lot of the issues with carbon markets is that they can be a distraction. Um, So it's making sure that the rules are set in a way that these offsets actually equate to something real in the physical, natural world. And unfortunately, a lot of these proposals, like offsets in forestry, for example, what you're doing in essence is creating a financial mechanism, a derivative to be traded, right? Um, A carbon credit that will exist in perpetuity that's based off of carbon that will stay in a tree only as long as that tree lives, right? So there's a lot of issues. There's issues about double counting, um, additionality, the the algorithms we use. Um, So carbon markets, I think, are a huge bulk of some of this. Also, again, writing the rules for the stock take Um, that will happen either next year or the following year. Another huge piece is finance, right? Back in 2009, Hillary Clinton went to Copenhagen at COP15 and promised developing countries that they were going to provide under the Obama administration $10 billion in fast-track funding and committed to provide $100 billion annually up to 2020. It's 2021 and about one-fifth of that has been provided, right? And a lot of that funding isn't new or additional. It's monies that have been, you know, moved from public health initiatives to climate, right? So you take funding from a female literacy program and shift it over to climate change. Also, a lot of the funding has come in the form of loans, some of those conditional loans, because now the IMF and the World Bank and other development banks are getting involved in climate finance. So even though the commitments have been made, right, you can go on the UN website and see the NDCs and you can see the analysis and how it takes us to a 2.7 degree world and it's not enough and doesn't match up with Paris. But there's a lot of these these more detailed elements about that implementation that will be discussed the rest of this and next week. Mike, you have another question? No, I'm just um I'm just trying to think of any other contrarian points of view because there's this consensus <laughs> that we're gonna talk, we're gonna add as much social justice as we can and it'll nudge forward. And I I don't have the faith in the political system. It's like war is too important for generals. I think climate change might be too important for politicians. But I don't, you know, I don't really have a save. I do have a commercial. If you've got a question, please go to the chat box because we're about to start the questions. One of our crafty carbon neutral uh, moderators here has sent me that message to make sure people know to go to the chat room. I guess one thing I'd say, this is something you hear around Republican world. And it's kind of become a partisan issue. I'd be, I'd be interested as climate policy experts what you think. What the Republicans who are awakening the climate change say is one of the great solutions that we, we like to find common ground with the left on is the new generation of nuclear power plants do a pretty good job of creating carbon-free electricity. 
They also take a lot of blue-collar workers and put them to work. You don't have to retrain an oil pipe fitter from Houston to spend 10 years building nuclear power plants with the same skills. It's also capital invested here. Do you think nuclear is part of the answer? It has PR stigma from the past, but um, it, it is the kind of thing I think you could start building political compromise with because the repubs are pretty, pretty pro-nuke, but in coalition politics, anything controversial can be trouble. What do you think nu- nuclear has a role in this, a crash program? What about nuclear? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I I can add some thoughts to that question. As we're sort of seeing that people are moving towards realizing that climate change is inevitable, we have to make some, you know, changes, we may have to. And as we were talking that, you know, even Republicans are getting on board to a certain extent. Um, all these transitions are happening. And, um, and if if we sort of follow this particular route, probably at some point we will be have we will have the momentum to actually make, you know, impactful changes. But the problem is that we don't have that time to actually wait for these transitions to happen. And that's where nuclear energy becomes like this, you know, nice sort of solution that okay, let's go for this because it will immediately sort of you know have this uh, reduction in emissions. And and then once we sort of, you know, transition to renewable energy, clean energy, then once the lifespan of that particular nuclear plant is done, then we, we, we choose to sort of pursue it or shut it down based on what the risks sort of, you know, come out of that particular decision. So that's where it becomes attractive. And I don't want to sort of make, I mean, from a technical point of view, we do have the technology of, you know, having nuclear energy plants, which are, um, you know, with with really uh, reduced risks of any kind of nuclear fallout. But but yes, it's a touchy issue. Risk perception associated with nuclear energy is very, very um, dividing and uh, and very, very um, serious. Like people have very serious response to nuclear energy and risks associated with that. So, yeah. Robert or Shannon, what do you think about nuclear energy as a solution here? I'm certainly no energy specialist, but just in terms of thinking about, you know, the palatability of this, uh, particularly in the U.S. context, because we talked about the difference between, you know, authoritarian versus democratic regimes. And I immediately think of all the not in my backyard campaigns that will arise the moment that we start to try and place or build nuclear power plants. Also someone as uh, who teaches public health and teaches on natural disasters. There's obviously a huge public health concern um, as we're seeing, you know, increasing amounts and severity of storms um, along our coast and the, you know, kind of thinking about where these places will, where these plants will be located, sited and built. And also as well as the equity aspects of not putting them all in, you know, communities that are of lower socioeconomic development from that justice perspective. So I think, as Mona Lisa mentions, that it could be something here that would be perhaps get some traction in the immediate term. But I I feel like there will still be large portions of society in the U.S. that are going to want to see a transition away from that, if if they even support it for the short term. Mike, let's go to questions. And why don't you take the first couple? Just for a second, Robert, did you have something on that? You know, Canada's a pioneer in nuclear power, so I'm curious. I don't see the politics for it at the moment. I don't see the, the public appetite for it. And I see, you know, quite a bit of potential resistance. But as the climate crisis gets worse and worse and the costs mount, I see uh, a more serious consideration of nuclear. And then also this may be outside our discussion, but also uh, numerous groups will start to be proposing various geoengineering uh, projects yeah. as, as we get um, 
as we bear more and more of the cost, I think people will be more desperate to look at alternative solutions. Uh, and then that raises really, really difficult questions. You know, one of the tech solutions, then we we'll go to questions that is under-recognized, is when we eventually, it'll be slower, get to self-driving cars. The very nature of self-driving cars takes massive weight out of the vehicle, which means for exponential energy savings. It's one of the great technologies that will have a massive input on auto emissions. Now, how we solve agriculture, we're, we're handle that in the next one, because that is that is really tough. First question from our friend Lance Ignon here at the Institute. Can you comment on the state, or a technical question again, of carbon sequestration and storage technology? Can we get to net zero without it? And that's basically sucking carbon either in emission points or in the atmosphere and burying it or cleaning it. Basically, you know, um, try to use technology and industrialize it to fight carbon emissions. Any bulls or bears on that? I think currently we are not considering it as much as it possibly could become important in the future uh, because right now our focus is more on carbon sinks, natural carbon sinks in terms of the ocean, the uh, Amazon and the forested area and, and the ones that, you know, uh, Shannon also men, uh, you know mentioned in terms of whales, uh, restoring whale population, elephant population, because they also play a significant role in that. And, um, and uh, so I think we are going for those natural solutions. As um, but of course the technology is slowly sort of getting there. And and again, depending on where we stand in terms of our ability to reduce emissions and meet out these targets, we may end up sort of relying on executing them in in a short term in the future. And that will of course open another can of worms because I, we are not sure how we will be executing those and implementing those and what kind of uh, um, impacts it will produce. So we don't know those things. But yes, those technologies are being developed and um, currently not being pursued as much as we think it is being talked about. I think there is a lot of funding in the pipeline because if they yes. if they can industrialize a good technology there, boy, oh yes. boy, that'll be heavily invested in. A question from Donna Gershenwald. What, if anything, gives you hope? I feel you, Donna. This is quite depressing and terrifying. As someone who lives in an area that floods, that has electrical grid issues and a Republican government, yes, I'm talking about Houston, actually a Democratic mayor, but I get your point on the grid. What can we do? I can comment on the hope part because teaching environmental politics twice a year for 10 years now, I get a lot of students who bring up this this notion of ecological depression and anxiety. And for me, I'll say just looking at what's happened in the United States during the Trump presidency, even though President Trump pulled us out of the Paris Agreement, it didn't prevent individuals, communities, social movements, and even corporations from continuing, including states also. Let's not forget that Hawaii passed its own legislation to be compliant with the Paris Agreement, right? So even though we had this pullback at the federal level, it didn't prevent progress on the individual state and city level, you know? So I think those are the things that I take as hopeful is seeing those small victories in local communities, seeing cities like LA sending Garcet, you know, sending the mayor to go to COP26, all these different things. Um, those are the things that I try and hang on to as my hopeful points. The way I think about it, I, I try to sort of look at the positive and the changes that have been happening um, 
in the past few decades, past you know five years even, um, we have a lot of people who are coming on board with this whole issue. Uh, we have a lot of private sector uh, representatives who are becoming more and more interested and 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 becoming more and more active in this particular area. We have, for example, you know, GM Motors. We have JP Morgan. They've all sort of recognized the importance of climate change and and have sort of made some commitments to to do some things which will actually be in sync with what was agreed upon in Paris Agreement. So, so I think there's a lot of transition that's happening. I can I read somewhere that about 70% of the world is ready to make changes in their lives to, to actually address this issue. And yes, I, that means that 30% are still sort of standing or disagreeing with it. But I think 70% is pretty decent sort of, you know, um, it, 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 it can create that momentum. And, uh, and I think we should just go ahead. Like Sharon was saying that even at the federal level, if things are not happening, you know, at a at a different level, people are still making the changes that is required, and uh, maybe we can pace it up. Even the private sector is getting involved, so I think there's lots going on. Um, but like I said, it's not going to get resolved in one year. It, it'll be one of those, you know, um, nail biting sort of. Uh, um, process where we are still sort of seeing how much progress are we being made, are we keeping up with the progress that is required to, to basically stay ahead of climate change. I always tell my students who also get extremely depressed uh, after uh, taking one of my climate courses that <laughs> although this is a long process, things can change very quickly and things can shift quite quickly. So things that look like they're immovable today can transform. And I tell them about, uh, I mean, they're too young to, to remember the Berlin Wall, but I tell them about visiting, you know, Berlin and, and looking up at this concrete barrier and machine gun posts and, and uh, the military around there and thinking, you know, this, this, will never, this will never change. It's going to be impossible for this wall to disappear. And then uh, it came down very, very quickly. So I think people shouldn't give hope because we are, we are able to change our politics and we are able to influence events and move things in different directions. Yeah, I totally agree with that. For 50 years in pop culture, smoking was the coolest thing ever. And people couldn't buy enough cigarettes. And in about five years, it flipped. Didn't eradicate smoking, but massively less market share. And people in 1955 would have said, you're crazy. People will never give up cigarettes. So populations can change. Opinions can change. And eventually, political entrepreneurs follow the market. And it, it is changing. You know, the question is just speed and how do we force some meaningful outcomes. But speaking of other platforms that might just do that, Abby Lundstrom wants to know, one of the four COP26 goals is, quote, mobilize finance for climate solutions and green technology. How much power do you think the investment world has to help shift our energy system and reduce emissions? Or is it more up to politics and policy? For example, the fossil fuel disvestment campaign has made a difference and it's not a result of government mandates. And I'll quickly say, this is where the real power is. You can line up free enterprise incentives, which is hard to do, but the, the torque and power behind it is tremendous. But what do we think on the panel? Well, I think that the, there is the potential, again, for, for rapid change. But the question is, what kind of regulatory environment can you create to incentivize the movement of money? Because so far we haven't had that. If you look at the amount of money that's going into renewable energy and you compare it to fossil fuels, it's still very small. So it takes the right public policy in order to encourage that 
uh, money to start to move. Yeah, I, I would like to add that, you know, if you're using, and this is sort of in connection to a question that was being discussed before as well, that how the private sector can get involved. And I think what we can do at the, when it comes to creating this opportunity to transition from fossil fuel based sort of sector to something which is clean is to encourage um, the private sector to get involved in identifying commodities that these groups can transition to. So one of the, of course, you know, obviously um, one, one of the commodity is clean energy, but there could be other technologies, other solutions which can be coming from this really intelligent and innovative group of people um, if they were given to the opportunity. And government can play a very important role by incentivizing, create, providing seeding funds to, to and, 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 and um, calling out for these groups to get involved and create commodities, create solutions, uh, which can then be implemented and transferred quickly. And, and, and that way we can sort of, you know, help with this process. I think that is something that we can do. Yeah, I wish one thing the politicians would do is stop simplifying it for bumper sticker applause. I worked for the wind industry for 10 years. Wind power is great, but it's limited. But people think, oh, you just put up two wind turbines and a solar panel, you solved the problem. And it's a bigger lift than that. People, by the way, never want a wind farm anywhere near where they live. It's not unlike nukes that way. And of course, solar is wonderful, except you need massive cheap land to do it in. And it doesn't work half the time because of night. But anyway, so we keep hearing these bumper stickers, green energy, it'll solve me. All you have to do is, yeah, I'm for green energy. Well, it's a much bigger lift. And I think just every voter has to get personally involved and demand stuff or it won't move. We're getting near the end of this. So I'd like to throw out a more general question. And I'd like each of you to address it. Where do you think we will be in 10, 20, and 30 years on this issue? Meaningful progress, but behind where we ought to be. I think I'll still be attending COPS, where we're consistently frustrated with the lack of progress, but there will be a lot of photo opportunities at these things. But there were a lot of big announcements. It all depends on if countries do what they say they're going to do, which, unfortunately, we don't have the best track record sometimes. But I think this is where these issues of soft power and norms and international community pressure do play a part, right? If you look at the role of China in the COPS and the UNFCCC, 15 20 years ago, it's dramatically different now, right? Developing countries were not even a part. I mean, they were included in the Kyoto Protocol, our first international treaty on climate change, um, but they didn't have to make mitigation cuts. They didn't have to make emissions reductions. And we look at how, how drastically that has changed in just a decade where emerging economies acknowledge that, yes, they have to deal with their own development issues and their own citizenry that needs access to clean water and energy, but they also have an obligation to the international community to deal with and curb the emissions that they are going to be this, you know, eventually become the largest contributors to. So I do think we'll continue to see progress. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to mass- match the pace that I would like to see it at. Robert, are we still going to be seeing the forests burn, the tides rise 10, 20, 30 years from now, maybe the Gulf Stream sink? Well, I think we're going to be in one of two places. Either we're going to have some sort of a combination of uh, successful transition with a kind of a liberal market system and some aspects of social transformation, or we're going to fall back into a very dystopian future where we haven't dealt with the problem and, you know, there's widespread social chaos and turmoil and conflict and food shortages and flooding and death from global heating and more inequality and more militarization of migration and other types of problems. I think those are the two 
two possibilities, and it really depends on, on what we do between now and then. Mona Lisa? Yeah, I would like to sort of add on and say I agree with both Shannon and Robert on that. I agree that the two scenarios that Robert sort of, you know, uh, stated right now seems very plausible depending on how people respond to the situation. I think the key is um, what if people are or countries have uh, like, you know, followed up with their um, targets and and the proposals that they've made. And in some ways, it is all about, you know, conditional, um, like conditional cooperation, right? If somebody is doing something, then then there is possibility of other people doing that. And that's what I think U.S. has a good chance of. And it, it has its own challenges, too. But I think U.S. has to sort of step up and just do things without waiting for anybody else to do anything, because um, because there is a very good chance that if U.S. does it, a lot of other countries will also follow up and do it. So um, so I think that's that's critical. So I think, you know, the decision that happens at domestically will actually play a very, very important role at a global scale as well. Well, we're coming to the end of this, and I want to thank Robert, Mona Lisa, and my colleague in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, Shannon. And I also want to thank our audience. Now, on Friday, November 12th, we will hold our annual Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics. This year, we're going to talk about what's happened in 2021, what its implications are for 2022. We call it the year of politicking dangerously. And it will kick off of the discussion between Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, and myself. And then we'll have an all-star cast of politicians and analysts talking about what's going on. I assumed, by the way, that by the time this conference came around, we would be past the reconciliation bill. We would be past the infrastructure bill. I'm not sure we will be, but I am sure it will be a very interesting exchange. So go to our website, the Center for the Political Future, at USC Dornsife, and register and join. I think you'll find it a very enlightening discussion. Once again, thanks to our panelists. And actually, you left me a little more hopeful than when I came in. Thank you all very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.